Queen sing she's on. Love Talk Radio. Music. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, this is Cyber Station USA Radio Network, Fairness Radio with Chuck Morrison, Dr. Patrick O'Heffern, and Monday through Friday, 1 to 3 p.m. Uh, uh, this is yours truly, Chuck Morrison, Boston. Uh, let me welcome aboard my co-host, Dr. Patrick O'Heffern, from Los Angeles. Patrick, how are you? I'm I'm good. It's sort of an exciting day. I see uh, Mitt Romney wrapped up three states last night. He now yep. has 58% of the delegates. And, of course, Obama wrapped up his nomination. Uh, there were also... Uh, the Democrats uh, voting in their uh, primaries last night too, so right. um, we are headed. To, I think we're now we now have the racetrack in front of us. But of course, there's a, a long ways to go. We got an exciting show today. We've got I'd a, say. Fox, a Fox News contributor. We've got a constitutional expert and a sitting U.S. Federal Appeals Court judge. It doesn't get right. much better than that. That's true. I know it really is very pow- pow- powerful, high-powered show. I must say, I'm almost speechless. <laughs> oh, you're never speechless. <laughs> <laughs> you, you don't know the beginning, but no, I'm I'm uh, deeply enmeshed in both books, Cosmic Constitutional Theory, that being by uh, Judge J. Harvey Wilkinson III, uh, our guest in the second hour, and Blacklash by Deneen Borelli. She's a Fox contributor, as you say. Both excellent. I just uh, yeah, I wish I had more time to read them. I will be reading them. Um, I've read in them. I feel bad that I haven't totally read them. I usually like to, you know, it's just they kind of all hit, you know, landed on my desk a little late for a show that's a little early, but so be it. So be it. We'll 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 do a great job anyway. Patrick, we had um Rabbi Klein on yesterday. Yes. And uh I think that he kind of changed I I would imagine somewhat of the dynamic of what we've been talking about for quite a while. And that is uh, politics and religion and how it intersects. Um, in his case, he's uh, he's a pulpit rabbi who is very political and openly so, advocating for political causes, supporting political initiatives on the ballot, um, you know, talking about living wage laws and whatnot. It's, the issues themselves are not all that relevant to me. I, they're fine. But um, what say you about that, Patrick? Do you think he's trying to uh, – is that unconstitutional? I mean, is he trying to create a, um, a Jewish theocracy? Well, no, it's not unconstitutional because he's not in, engaging in, in elections. And, and that's the, uh, the, the important uh, thing there. Uh, that is in, uh, in, in U.S. federal elections or, the, or working for particular candidates. So, so in that case, he's perfectly legal. He's not uh, bothering his um, his 501c3 status at all, 
and uh, I applaud him. And the same thing goes for Christian churches that do the same thing. We obviously, in fact, uh, people who are working with him are Christian ministers. So that that's well within constitutional free speech rights, and hooray for him. Is he though not engaging in elections? I mean, he's he's certainly engaging in initiative petitions on the ballot. <clears throat> those, those are elections. Those yeah, the uh, initiative petitions are are well within the Constitution. It's when you get into candidates that you have the problem. Well, I, I'm not sure we really asked him that directly. Maybe we should have him back on, but I have a feeling okay. that he does engage in elections. I mean, in the same way that uh, that others do, not in the sense, and I think he did actually answer that, not in the sense that he's formally endorsing a candidate, but in the sense that he'll have candidates into the synagogue and he'll give them time and, you know, and he will um, say things that come close to that. You know, he'll right. say things like, well, we support these issues. Let's compare where candidate X stands versus – do you know what I mean? So I think that he does do that, Patrick, and I think he pretty much said that. Well, well, um, uh, I can check with him on that. We've got to take a quick break to bring in our uh, radio stations, and we have a guest waiting on the line too. So why don't we take a Great. quick break about uh, – one minute, and that will give us our radio station's time to get in. You can welcome them in, and then we have a guest. Okay. Patrick Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. Uh, I'd like to welcome aboard our affiliate stations, WWPR in Bradenton, Florida, and KSKQ in Ashland, Oregon, Blog Talk Radio, and, of course, our host station, Cyber Station USA Radio Network. Our guest this segment is Deneen Borelli, who is the author of Blacklash, How Obama and the Left are Driving Americans to the Government Plantation. Uh, Deneen Borelli is a fellow with Project 21 a network of black conservatives, which is an initiative of the National Center for Public Policy Research and is also a fellow with Freedom Works. She currently serves as an official contributor to Fox News. Uh, Deneen, thanks so much for joining us this afternoon. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Um, I'm enjoying the book. It's a pretty quick read. I recommend it highly to our listeners available uh, in all major bookstores. Um, I want to just start out by asking you a question about an issue that's currently in the news. Since you're a Fox News contributor, I'm sure you probably have commented on it already. And that is the Trayvon Martin case. Uh, this seems to have struck a nerve with a lot of people in that it reminds us, putting aside the actual case itself, which is a whole different topic. But 
from a, uh, a philosophical standpoint, it, it reminds us of the possibility that young black men are being singled out for special attention uh, in a negative way, and uh, and that that can include um, you know being uh, acts of violence committed against them. Could you comment both on the case itself and also on what this means? Is this a reflection of the current state of race relations uh, in America? Well, I, I do believe this uh, case is very tragic, along with any other case that is uh, involving anyone who is killed, especially a young individual who has their life uh, before them, a, a, a career and lifetime ahead of them. Uh, what I do believe has happened with this situation is that there has been a rush to judgment. I still see that there is more and more information coming out about the circumstances of what occurred uh, uh, in February. Uh, but unfortunately, we have a number of individuals who I call the liberal black establishment who has fanned the flames of racial tension with this situation. And when you mm -hmm. compare this situation to other instances where there are black individuals that uh, implement black-on-black -black crime, uh, they are nowhere to be found. So I find it interesting, first of all, that we are kind of just now hearing about all of this the last few weeks, but also how this has been addressed by the liberal black establishment. Which, which you write about at length in your book, and I mean, I would think that both, in a sense, are true. There are racial tensions, especially with young black men being put under a special microscope, but it also is an issue that is uh, being exploited and the flames are being fanned by people who uh, have political reasons, even perhaps financial reasons for doing it. Um, the, um, is this something that... Um, do you think? I mean, I'm expecting, as someone who's watching the upcoming election, I am. It's almost like a predictable shoe dropping, that somehow there's going to be a race card played, that somehow um, any criticism of President Obama is going to be put into the context that people don't like him because he's black, and that um, the Republicans are racist. Do you see that well, coming down, and how is it going to happen? Well, one of the reasons I wrote Black Lash really is to inform people about how different things are handled and perceived in our society. Just because President Obama is black, uh, my criticism about him is about his failed policies, the spending, the debt, the deficit. And when you think about it, early on when the Tea Party movement came on the scene in 2009, how the movement was criticized and targeted as being racist and extremist and redneck. And I mm -hmm. speak at different Tea Party groups across the country. In fact, I had a book signing just last night in New Jersey, and I can tell you, these individuals want to hear about the policies and how they are affecting us today and in the future, and it has nothing to do about race. It is about the policies that have really resulted in the growth of government, which is a reduction in our liberties. So we've seen the race card being played uh, a few years ago, and I do believe, sadly, it will be played even more as we get closer to the presidential uh, election. Okay, our guest is Janine Borelli. The book is Blacklash, How Obama and the Left are Driving Americans into the Government Plantation. I mean, I, I certainly agree with you in that I think that the Tea Party movement is very based on issues, uh, you know, dealing with um, bad government policies. I think it really started under the last 
you know, few months of the Bush administration. Oh, and absolutely. uh has nothing to do with race. But um but yet uh, African Americans voted for Barack Obama, I think something like ninety five percent and I understand that there's an ethnic pride element to that and I think it that it was important that we elected a black man as president. I think it was quite monumental. But yet um at the same time has that now that now that he is president has there been, first of all, any major change in the way we view the race relations in America like we thought there would be? And secondly, is the uh, black vote going to be that uniformal this time around? Well, I, I do think this will be all about the economy, this upcoming election. And when you, and you look at the facts, uh, unemployment is still unacceptably high at 8.3%. If you look at unemployment in the black community, it is double among what it is among white individuals. It's 13 14%, and among black teens, black youth, it's approaching 40%. So when you look at an, uh, a policy such as Obama's energy policy, President Obama's energy policy is a war on fossil fuels. And this war is a war against hardworking Americans because we have a wealth of natural resources right here in our country. And the fossil fuel industry provides many, many jobs. It provides substantial tax revenue to the government, and it provides uh, you know, our uh, energy needs, which is 85%. Our economy runs on 85% of fossil fuels, that's coal, oil, and natural gas. So I say to individuals who may have voted for Obama simply because he's black, whether the voter was black, white, or otherwise, look at something like his energy policy. Uh, the, the EPA regulations that are driving up fossil fuel prices, and then I say to them, think about someone that you know, maybe it's a friend or a family member who is on a fixed income. If this individual has to pick and choose, do I buy my medicine this month or pay my rising utility bill, uh, that should not be the case in this day and age in our country simply because we have a wealth of natural resources. So what I try to talk to people about are the pocketbook issues. Forget about race. Uh, I remind them of Martin Luther King, content of character, not skin color. Where does a politician stand on issues, and how will those issues affect you today and in the future, your family, your friends? You know, Janine, I think that in the in the current racial parlance, if um, – if Barack Obama were white and if he were a Republican, he would absolutely, under the same exact circumstances and with the same exact administration, this absolutely would have been an issue of race. He would have been called a racist in two seconds, but maybe his skin color actually protects him from that. But uh, do you think that uh, there's going to be any shift at all amongst the black community this election? Do you think there's going to be any move move toward voting for a Republican? Well, as I mentioned, the unemployment numbers and as I've mentioned uh, what Obama right. has done in regard to the energy policy, if anyone is paying attention to at least those two issues, I mean, there are a number of issues on the table that are affecting Americans on a daily basis. But look at the job situation. Look at our education situation. If you live in an urban community and you have a number of failing public schools that are not teaching our children the way they should be taught, at least for uh, a great uh, basic uh, education for them to be successful in life. Look at what is going on around you. 
And then how mm. can you, uh, you know, support someone who, when he stepped into the White House, President Obama did not want to fund the voucher program in Washington, D.C. It took John Boehner to provide funding for that program, which was providing quality education for underprivileged children in the Washington, D.C. area. So this is what I try to talk to people about, the issues, the core issues and policies that have an effect on our country today but will especially have an effect on our country in the future. You know, it's a great issue. I mean, certainly you have, um, you know, the, the uh, President Obama and much of the Democratic Party caving into the public teachers' unions and opposing vouchers, which would help inner-city poor black kids get out of those enormous and miserable schools. On that point, let me welcome in my co-host, Dr. Patrick O'Heffernan. Patrick? Uh, thank you, Chuck, and, and Deneen, thank you for being with us. We only have about six or seven minutes left, so... Um, I want to focus on your argument. First of all, let me say, as, as a progressive, I appreciate uh, the opportunity to read this book and to talk to you. Um, th there are many things in it that I disagree with, many facts that I contest, but I think your, your basic argument is one that, that deserves very strong consideration, not only by people like Chuck, but also people on my side of the political aisle, too. Um, and I'd like to ask you about that. Uh, a couple of years ago, Chuck and I went to see the film Precious, and we both walked out of that movie saying to each other the welfare system doesn't work, that no matter what the, uh, the, the intentions were when it was started, it has created a mostly black um, dependent underclass. And I wonder if, if you could tell us how we got here, and more importantly, how do we get out of it? How do we fix this at scale? Sure. Well, that is a, a great question. And you know, one thing that all Americans really need to understand is the importance of hard work. Uh, I've been working since I was 12, 13 years old. I knew then that I had to work hard, apply myself in order to gain uh, whatever wants and needs that I wanted in my life. I left home in my early 20s. Uh, I write about this in my book because I want to be able to tell individuals and especially our young people that you're, you're not going to be handed everything in life. That is not the, the real world. But sadly, we have an entitlement society where there are way too many individuals who think they should be taken care of, taken care of by other people, taken care of by the government, when in fact it's personal responsibility. And, and I believe America is an exceptional country where anyone can succeed based on their hard work. Uh, there was a young boy at the, uh, the uh, event I spoke at last night for a book signing in the sixth grade. His mother bought my book for him, and I looked at him and I said, how are you doing in school, and what do you want to be when you grow up? And he was actually really looking forward to reading my book, which is really exciting. But I tell you, uh, I think we really need to reach out to our young people to let them understand that government is not the answer. We need more mentors. If you are someone that is retired and you have time to mentor a child, expose them to a bigger world, I mean, when people knew about what I was uh, searching for in my life, I had a lot of people who stepped up and, and provided uh, me with assistance and guidance. But I had to prove to them that I wanted to step up and make myself a better person. And so I really think there are a lot of people who are able to contribute to our future and help them understand and realize that it's not the government, but it's you, the individual. 
And that, I think, would be a really great message for those to not think that government is the answer and that welfare will carry me through the rest of my life because, sadly, we have a lot of people who are in the cyclical, cyclical um, the cycle. I'm sorry. There's a cycle of dependency, uh, and I've seen it growing up on a personal level. So that is my message uh, to Americans, but especially to our youth. Well, I, I completely agree with that, but uh, once they decide to, to to step out to understand that uh, hard work is uh, is the path to success in this country. How do we see to it that there's a path there for them? There isn't right now, um, and uh, cutting taxes for the wealthy certainly didn't work under the Bush administration. We lost millions of jobs as a result of that policy. So how do we make sure that when they do step out, there's a job there for them and there's training for that job? Well, what we need are less taxes. I say uh, I'm in favor of really uh, researching what a flat tax could do to our, for our country because that way uh, you have a fixed tax rate, 15 or 17%, let's say, and then that way you would, you would have more people uh, providing tax revenue to the government. Right now there's almost 50% of Americans who are not paying federal income taxes. So you would have a flat base, you would broaden the base, and you, and you would be able to generate more income for government. And on the flip side, uh, I do believe it is the wealthy who are the ones who take the risk to uh, have a small business. They are the ones who are able to provide uh, jobs for individuals and take that risk, uh, have a small business. But on the flip side, there are so many barriers to entry uh, with regulations and high taxes that people are afraid to take that risk because of the uncertainty. So. There are a lot of things that we can do, our government should do, to uh, you know, uh, make it easier for individuals to start a small company, to start a small business. Look at Apple, started in, in, in the garage, correct? I mean, look at, look at Apple today and the number of jobs that they provide for Americans. Well, we'll have. Unfortunately, we're we're pretty much out of time. I'd I'd love to have you back. I especially would like to debate you on energy policy because I think you're definitely on the wrong track there. But uh, I do appreciate uh, the book. I do want to recommend it to even my my progressive friends. It's called Black Lash, and it's um it's a very thoughtfully written, very well argued. And I hope at some point we can actually have you back on when uh, we've got uh, maybe a half an hour to really get into some of these issues. Chuck, we, we're going to have to take a break, and uh, so why don't you wrap it up? All right. Thanks so much, uh, Janine Borelli, for joining us. Available in all major bookstores, Blacklash, How Obama and the Left are Driving Americans to the Government Plantation. Uh, thanks so much. Thank you very much, gentlemen. Thank you. All right. Take care. We're going to take a quick Patrick, break, we'll and take then, a break. Uh, yep. Albert uh, Navarro will join us.
are back. You are listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick on the Blog Talk Radio Network, on the Cyber Station USA Network, and on our radio affiliates. And uh, our host today is Chuck Morse. So take it away, Chuck. Thank you, Patrick. Our guest just now was uh, Bla- uh, Jean Janine Borelli, Blacklash. Patrick, I'll ask you maybe when we have a, a free time exactly how it is that the Bush tax cuts led to millions of jobs lost. I don't know where that came out of, but right now we're going to discuss a more legal issue, that being uh, uh, the Constitution with Albert Navarro, our regular contributor, the author of uh, The Elements of Constitutional Law. Albert, thanks for joining us. Oh, my pleasure, Mr. Morrison, Dr. O'Heffernan. Good to hear your voices. Albert, we got into a real intense conversation yesterday with two religious figures, but one in particular I want to focus on, that being Mikey Weinstein, who is uh, Weinstein, excuse me, who is uh, talking about the issue of uh, proselytizing in the military. And his contention, which I think he brings up an important issue, but he goes, he goes way beyond it and he discredits it. But the important part that he brings up is his claim, and he does, I believe, have some cases to back it up, that there have been officers, particularly in the Air Force, who have tried to force people under their command to convert to their religion, uh, to, to, to their to, and their religion happens to be fundamentalist Protestant, and have used coercive pressures to make them go to prayer meetings and whatnot, and uh, with retaliation against them if they don't go. Um, and I think that I hope and I assume that we can all agree that that's not only not right, but it's actually, I thought at least against military policy. Um, I, I wonder why they're not being disciplined by the Joint Chiefs of Staff, I mean, for that. But he takes it one step further, and he begins to demonize uh, fundamentalist Protestantism uh, and with claims that you can't even dis- these people can't even discuss it or advocate for it in a private context within the military or else they're operating against the Constitution, and then he weaves it into a very broad conspiracy theory where he says that um, these Protestants in the military are in cahoots with certain congressmen whom he didn't name, uh, with a lieutenant general by the name of Boykin, and with certain people who apparently are in big business to create a theocracy in the United States, something that is absolute hogwash. But, you know, and, and I think it discredits a legitimate cause. So my question to you, Albert, is, what, do you know anything about the military rules on this? No, I don't. Um, and uh, But we can talk about the constitutional aspect of this. Sure. Um, okay, how do you pronounce his name? Is it Weinstein? Weinstein. 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 Okay, right. Let's just take the first um, argument or example that uh, you presented, where you basically have an officer mm-hmm. forcing a soldier or coercing a soldier to convert to a religion. That would clearly be... I I, I wouldn't even say... I think maybe I'm overstating it. I would say they're forcing a soldier to attend religious services of of his particular denomination with with threats of retaliation if they don't do it. Okay. Uh, That would clearly be unconstitutional for for two reasons. One, you would have what we call state action. You would have action by the government. Remember... Uh, you know, the protections, the liberties afforded by the Constitution apply only when you have government action. Uh, it does not apply when you have private action. So here you have government action because it's an officer. 
of, right. of the United States government. So you have state action. And the second thing is when you have any kind of uh, coercion or duress or, or, or force or threat of punishment for someone to attend a religious ceremony, that's a violation of the Establishment Clause because the, the Establishment Clause basically says that um, you know the government shall not establish a religion. So that's a pretty simple textbook example of, yeah, that would be unconstitutional. Um, right. Now, the second example that um, you discussed is not so clear. Well, the second example was that you can't, he, he apparently, let's just say he's arguing that you can't discuss religion in the military, okay? Right, and he that, also, as an example of that, he took up the fact that the Fort Bragg invited a Protestant minister to speak, which he said is unconstitutional and that they should be brought up on charges for yeah. that. I, I, which I think yeah. is a stretch. You know, I mean, they well, can invite anyone they want. Okay, here's but, here's the thing on that. It, just yes. if you just take the statement, you know, that no religion can be discussed whatsoever on a military base, that's not true. Okay. Right. Um, so you know, we have the first example that would be unconstitutional: an officer forcing someone to attend a religious service. We have a second hypothetical, you know, uh, you know, hypothetical prescription against any discussion of religion on a, on a military base. That that would not be you can discuss religion on a military base. Um, right now, now let me and I'm not going to touch the conspiracy thing. I have no idea about that. Right. Let me let me make it a little bit more complicated here. If if you just go on the internet and um, you go to Mr. Weinstein's um, posts, I, I, I saw a website there. I'm not sure if he's operating it or or whatever. Yes. But if you just Google, okay, if you Google you know proselytizing on uh, U.S. military bases, you'll get some reports from here and there about, you know, a half a dozen, maybe six or eight different examples of some sort of religious activity at a military base. A lot of it seems to be happening at uh, Colorado's Air Force Academy. Now, yes. I'm not going to vouch for the factual accuracy of any of this stuff because there's been no court case filed. There's been no uh, finding of facts. So who really knows what is actually actually happening? So we have to discuss this very hypothetically, okay? And the first point I want to make is that we're not actually talking about one case here or one government action. We're talking about, you know, six or eight different things. There's a story that um, the military had a video about the importance of faith in dealing with post-combat depression. There's another mm -hmm. story that um, a group called Focus on the Family um, had some agreement with the Pentagon to host seminars on marriage and things like that. There's another right. story that, uh, you know, they had some holiday displays at uh, Travis Air Force dis uh, Base. Now, again, I don't know if all these things are true or not, but the first point I want to make is that this isn't dealing with a simple thing like, let's say, um, the uh, Restore Valor Act or the health care law. You're talking about six or eight or maybe even more examples of religious activity on military bases, and, and the the analytic problem is that you have to analyze each one separately and and see, A, who's acting, right? Do you have an officer who's acting, or are there no government actors? B, is the government spending any money on this at all? And if so, how much? Just a little bit or a lot? C, where is the activity taking place? Is it on a military base, or is it somewhere else where just some military people happen to attend? All kinds right. of complicated facts you have to analyze to see what's what's um, 
what you know whether it's constitutional or not. And then just real quick, a couple more issues. One is state action. You always want to make sure that there's a government actor because if there's no government action, no government sponsorship, no government complicity, then there's no constitutional law issue. Another issue is who can sue? Okay, let's say we find out what's happening and somebody doesn't like it. Who can sue to challenge it? Well, first you look at federal taxpayers. Um, and the general rule is that just because you're a federal taxpayer, you cannot sue. There's an exception, and that is where the government spends a significant, substantial amount of money under its taxing and spending power and, and violates some specific limitation on that power. So, for example, let's say the government is spending a lot of money on some of these religious activities, and arguably that violates the Establishment Clause, then a federal taxpayer can sue. But sure. let's say hypothetically, and that's why I brought this factor up earlier, what, what, what say, let's say the government's not s s spending a substantial amount of money under the taxing and spending power, or very little or none, then a, a federal taxpayer would not have standing to sue. So who can sue? Maybe a soldier, right? Maybe a soldier, but what? he'd have to be a soldier who's injured somehow. So how would a soldier right. be injured by this? Well, what if it what was if brought into the what if it was brought into the base by a by a group of soldiers who wanted to finance it out of their own, you know, private club inside the base? Well, then a federal taxpayer would not have standing to sue because that's not right. a substantial and it would be a private, it would be a private event even though it was on the base. It wouldn't be it would be voluntary. It wouldn't be well, I mean unless you have a commanding officer ordering people now, Patrick, you had an example yesterday in the talk, at least after our talk, of a situation or many situations where, where you claimed that officers were commanding um, their soldiers to go to these meetings and penalizing them if they didn't go. It doesn't sound like Mickey Weinstein's website actually has any of those. I mean, I'll admit I haven't gone through it, but um, is that what were you looking at, Patrick, when you said that? Well, this has been a, uh, something I've sort of followed for uh, at least two years now. Um, and, and the way it works, and, and I know neither you and I have been in the military, but I, I was in ROTC for two years and did spend uh, some time in, in military maneuvers with uh, um, uh, a, a Georgia um, put, uh, battalion. Uh, the, uh, the colonel sends a, a notice out to uh, the sergeants that says we're going to be holding a prayer meeting at such and such a time, and I want you to see to it all your troops are there. The sergeant posts the, uh, the, 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 uh, the notice on the, the barracks uh, door, and uh, that prayer meeting is held, and the sergeant keeps track of the people who aren't there. And then the mm -hmm. sergeant calls them in and says, you weren't at the prayer meeting. That, that was the colonel's prayer meeting. You make me look bad. Why? And they say something like, well, I'm Jewish, da-da-da-da-da. And then the sergeant says, well, nevertheless, the colonel made me look bad, so you're going to be on report for the next two weeks, and that means you can't leave the barracks, you have no phone, you have no, no, no computer, and by the way, I want you to start getting up at 5 in the morning and doing the five-mile run with the new recruits, except you're going to be wearing a 50-pound pack. And, when, and after the second day of doing that, the, the, uh, the particular soldier collapses of exhaustion. The, soldier, the, the, the sergeant comes over and kicks him in the ribs and said, see, if Jesus was with you, you wouldn't be falling down and with your face in the mud. That's the kind of intimidation you get. It's not something that you can take into court. But there's a pattern of it, and I've been reading about patterns of it uh, for some time. It's, it's all below the radar. Uh, it did flare into the public um, uh, about three years ago when the U.S. Air Force Academy started harassing a Jewish uh, 
uh, soldier who turned out to be the son of um, a White House staffer, and that made it there. But it, it's a pattern of intimidation. It's, ne- it's never you are ordered to do this. It is, uh, well, your name wasn't on the list, so I think you need some more training kind of thing. And after a while, if you're a soldier, you just get the message that uh, you should just show up. You know, you can daydream through the thing, but you better show up or you're going to be uh, run, running that fifty, that five miles every morning at 5 o'clock with a pack on. Well, Patrick, you say that this is how it works, and yet I don't know if, if there's any actual cases of that on Mickey Weinstein's website, and that would not be because he isn't looking for that. Um, and I'm not saying that that isn't how it works, but it sounds to me like this is anecdotal. Uh, Albert? Well, that's, you know, we just discussed that earlier, right? We, we don't really know what the facts are. We don't know. Nothing's confirmed. Nothing's proven. So we're, we have to be careful and talk a, a lot in terms of hypotheticals. And I would just say, Dr. Heffernan, based on that hypothetical, that would be unconstitutional because that's exactly the right. first example that Mr. Morse brought up. You have an officer who's a, a state actor, right? Um, so you have state action, and he's basically forcing or compelling someone to engage in religious activity. It might be through punishment, you know, run with the the new recruits or, you know, heavy pack or whatever, but it's basically forced religion, so it would be unconstitutional. Who could sue? That soldier well, could sue because he's the one who's injured, right? So you have, right. um, and, re- and remember, in, in, in order to sue, whether you're suing because uh, of a car accident or a contract or constitutional law violation, you have to show you were injured. So that that, that sh- yeah. hypothetical uh, soldier could show injury and, and be able to sue. That's difficult. Uh, there, the, uh, the specific case I was talking about actually did occur. It, it occurred um, at Fort Eustis uh, on, in um, uh, 2010, August 2010, and the, the soldiers were required, were, were invited by the colonel to attend a Christian band concert, and those who, who for some reason didn't show up were, were confined to the barracks. Well, if you're a private and the colonel has requested something and, and you don't do it, um, it's very difficult for you to sue. Uh, for first, for first of all, that means you, you've got the ability to hire a lawyer or to get to an organization that will provide you to a lawyer. Secondly, there is no information. And thirdly, even if you do sue, it's going to take you years. You'll be out of the, uh, the military by the time that happens. And fourthly, while you're in court, you can expect more of the same. You're probably going to be confined to barracks for the entire trial. And if Patrick, you lose, I don't you're going to go back to the, the, the barracks with the same colonel again. He's going to do the same thing all over again. It's really yeah. Difficult. I don't understand. I don't understand how a band concert is uh, forcing uh, someone to have religion. But I know that at West Point, for example, Christian band concert. Oh, they happen to be Christians who testify their love for Jesus. Oh, okay. Then that's different. But I know that at West Point, for example, and I toured West Point recently. I have a relative who actually runs tours there. Um, They do have mandatory religious service, but it's all based upon whatever your denomination is, or if you're an atheist, you can go to an atheist meeting. But they do have it. They've always had it going all the way back to the beginning of the founding of uh, of the institution. Uh, I think that the key there is that it's not mandatory for one particular religion. It has more to do with just a general uh, expectation that one will engage in some sort of spiritual or non-spiritual, as it were, activity once a week. Uh, So, you know, that's, that's the problem. I mean, and I agree, if it's just this one religion that people are being mandated to do, then, yeah, that's a biggie. 
Uh, I'm not ask, sure it's all that systemic. I want to ask Albert uh, about that, but real quickly, let me just identify, as you're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick on the Blog Talk Radio Network, Cyber Station USA, and our radio affiliates, and we're talking with Albert Navarra. He's our regular constitutional expert, and we're talking about uh, religious proselytizing in the military. Um, is that constitutional, Albert, for a, um, a government-sponsored uh, military uh, university to require its um, students to go to religious services of any kind? No, that's compelled religion. Um, but let me let me why another get away with it for two hundred. Well, years. why has West Point been doing it since George Washington, uh, since Alexander Hamilton established the institution? I mean, I think the difference there is that it's not. First of all, it's not compulsory, and secondly, it's not one particular religion. It's just expected that one would attend some sort of a religious or atheist service once a week. So I think that right. therefore that, it is constitutional. Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's not. If it's not compulsory, then it would be constitutional. And that, that right. let me use that to segue into another important part here. We've talked a lot about very one-on-one coercive hypotheticals, right? An officer saying, hey, I didn't see you at the prayer meeting, you know, here's a pack. But I think something that's much more common and much more legitimate that happens in the military are these seminars they have or meetings they have where they discuss legitimate issues like, you know, coming back from war and getting back into society and trying to keep your marriage going and trying to continue to raise your kids, right? A lot of marriage and family and psychological issues that these soldiers deal with. The military obviously spends a lot of time and energy on that, and they do it sometimes um, through religion. And that's okay if they do it in a neutral manner, and they allow speakers with not just religious viewpoints but non-religious viewpoints. And what I'm right. what I'm talking about here is something called forum law. Okay, we've talked a lot about the establishment clause, right, which says government can't establish a religion. But there's another part of the First Amendment that's that's relevant, and that's free speech. And there's a little free speech, well, actually a big free speech rule that says that when you're dealing with speech. And that's what we're dealing with here, speech. When you're dealing with speech on non-public forums, for example, military bases or schools, um, the, if the government decides to open up that forum for, for speech, right, like let's say these military bases, if they decide to have seminars and group meetings and whatever to talk about these issues like PTSD and family and all that, they can't discriminate based on viewpoint. They can't say, okay, this group can come in and talk and show videos because they're from a religious viewpoint, but that group cannot come on in because they're non-religious, right? Or flip it around. So when the when the when the government decides to open up its public property to, to speech on certain subject matters, it has to let in all comers. It cannot discriminate based on viewpoint, and that's what's happening, I think, in a lot of these um, situations here. Basically, the government is saying, "Look, man, we got issues that we need to take care of. We need to take care of our soldiers. So we're going to have these." meetings, seminars, videos, and whatnot, and we're going to allow non-religious groups to come in and, 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 exp- and give their advice from their viewpoint and perspective, and we're going to allow religious groups to come in and, 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 and talk on that important subject from their religious viewpoint, and that is constitutional. Yeah, and I think okay. that uh, in the case of, um, of Mikey Weinstein, he wants all of it banned. I mean, he wants right. to be... 
no right for the um, prosecutor minister to come in, and even his own group, which I think is fine, uh, that that held sort of a counter-religious conference. He didn't think that they should have that either, and you know he's into this delusional stuff about uh, you know a, a conspiracy to create a Christian government, and it's dripping with anti-Christian, um, you know, anti-religious Christian, I should say. Uh, rhetoric that's, that that should that, that's it's like he's on a jihad against uh, religious Christianity. Well, this 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 you know what I just explained about forums, right? And 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 the rule against viewpoint discrimination. This ties back to that second point you brought up about you know why Mr. Weinstein is arguing that you can't discuss religion at all on a military base. Right. And I said that's not really true. And that, this is why. And it's he's not suing. True. They're actually trying to encourage lawsuits. If somebody even yeah. opens their mouth about anything to do with religion, he's like, we're going to go in. We're going to crack their heads. I mean, it's it's really intense. Right. And so, again, a lot depends on the facts. Who really knows what's going on? But just real, real brief summary, if you have an officer forcing, yeah. coercing, compelling a soldier clearly. to attend something, clearly unconstitutional. But if you have the military opening up its doors for discussions on all these legitimate issues like family raising, uh, marriage, and so on, and they're allowing all comers, religious and non-religious, that's totally okay. It happens Good. not just on military bases. It happens in schools every day, and there are many cases sure. on that too. Yeah. Yep. Patrick? Uh, you know, I, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm trying to get my head around this. Uh, um, the Constitution says that the, the the Congress shall make no law advancing or interfering uh, with with religion. And you're telling me, Albert, and, and because you're the expert, I believe you that the uh, a military base and in particular this particular general can bring in uh, religious speakers um, on government property and allow them to talk as long as the commanding general also allows people from a whole variety of viewpoints, non-religious, different religions, etc., to speak. Am, am I understanding that correctly? That, that's basically it, as long as he's okay. not coercing or punishing okay. anyone who decides not to go. Yeah. Okay, yeah. all right. And, and uh, so the facts that you really have to look at are whether or not there is coercion or intimidation involved. And in the Virginia case, um, and, and that case, incidentally, what went to court, and, and I believe they won on that case, uh, th there was intimidation uh, involved, and uh, and I guess that's what was it about, Patrick? In, in a nutshell, intimidation. Well, they said that that uh, if they didn't go, they were confined to their barracks and put on report. So that that pretty much says intimidation. Sure. Yep. So I, I guess it, what it comes down to whether or not it, there's intimidation or coercion. Right. That, yeah, that, that is the that is the issue. I mean, well, I'm asking, I, I, I'm asking I, I'm Albert. Is that, I understand that. Issue, yeah, yeah, that that's an important factor, absolutely. Um is state action is an important factor, right? But what is the government doing? Is 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 there some soldier or general who's who's in charge of this thing? Is the yeah, government is was. the military spending money? Is the military creating a forum and allowing their property to be there has to be some kind of state action. There has to be someone who's injured somehow, either a federal taxpayer like you and me because they're spending a lot of money and they're violating the establishment clause, or a soldier who's being punished for not participating. And then there has to then you have to analyze the constitutional law issues. Is is you know is there an establishment clause violation? Is the government 
doing something for the purpose of establishing religion, or which would be unconstitutional, okay. or on the other hand, are they doing something for the purposes of helping soldiers reintegrate back into society, keep their marriages okay. intact, right. and raise their kids, right? So, things like fair that. Fair enough, and, and, and that makes that makes go, uh, good sense. Um, in this in this case, there was a particular uh, general who uh, instituted what he called the spiritual fitness concerts which were all Christian bands, and that I think was what one of the issues there was. It was all, it was all Christian. There wasn't anything else involved in it. Um, there's another issue, though, that went along with that, and that is the U.S. Air Force, and actually the, the, uh, the mil- all, all the military branches, instituted a survey of spiritual fitness. This was in 2010. It was called the... Non-denominational. Uh, well, yes, but... Um, and I realize that when you join the military, you, many of your constitutional rights are left at the door. But I just wanted to, to hear from you, Albert. It is, does the military have a constitutional right to uh, ask uh, troops what their religion is and how often they go to church and what their feelings about God are and things like that? I suppose they can ask. There's no harm in asking. The question is, does a soldier have to answer and if he dec- or she decides not to answer, what are the repercussions? I, would I don't, say I don't think that the um, I don't think the spiritual fitness thing had to do with that. It wasn't asking what people's denominations were. It had more to do with someone's spiritual health. And I think that given the fact that our military is going into war situations where they're being having to kill people, and they might end up engaging in massacres. I would think that it's probably a pretty good thing to make uh, soldiers aware of, you know, well, rather I, than just. Uh, well, you, yeah. that, that may be your opinion, Chuck, but I'm, I'm asking uh, our our expert about. Of course, I, I, but I'm here to express my opinion, okay. Lieutenant Patrick. All right, all right. Um, and that was uh, Brigadier General uh, uh, Rhonda Cornum was actually uh, behind that. So, uh, taking into account Chuck's opinion, and which I don't necessarily disagree with, that it's a good thing to know. Um, you, as an employer, particularly as a government employer, even a private employer, you can't ask those questions. But I take it the military, because it is it is immune from some constitutional um, uh, rights, can ask those questions, and it can demonstrate, as Chuck has just said, that there's a good reason for it. Am I correct in that? Yeah. You know, you know, another legitimate reason for asking would be that the military tries to accommodate uh, the religious beliefs of all soldiers. Um, the military tries to accommodate the, the free exercise of the religious beliefs of, of all soldiers as much as it can while still you know, keeping the military together. So it, just for the purposes of doing a survey and finding out, okay, you know, what, 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 where are, what do our soldiers believe? How many, what different religious groups do they belong to? What are the percentages? Do we need a bigger chapel? Do we need a Buddhist okay. temple? Do we need, you know what yeah. I mean? So just yeah. for the purposes of investigation okay. and, and accommodating the religious beliefs of the soldiers, that would be legitimate. But if they're trying to find out, are you a believer or not, and if you're not, then punish you, that would not be constitutional. Okay. Right. And, I, and I don't think that the spiritual fitness even is asking those. Hi, do you have a comment? Hello? Do you have a comment? Did we lose Mr. Morris? Uh, religious expression. Um, yeah, Albert, I couldn't hear the. I could, Mr. Morse, uh, you 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 cut out the first part the, of what you said. I didn't hear. Can you repeat, please? Oh, I, I, I'm just saying that this military program of spiritual fitness has nothing to do with a denomination of religion. It has more to do with 
a person's uh, spirituality. It's not, and what perhaps in relation to how they may uh, conduct themselves in a war theater, which I would think is probably a pretty good idea. Chuck, we have a caller. Okay. You're on caller, the air. On Thanks the air for calling. With, you're on the air with uh, Fairness Radio, Chuck and Patrick. Hi, everyone. Um, Hi. I, I couldn't. I couldn't help but listen to the 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 so-called aspect of spirituality versus religion. And yep. I, I have to say from personal experience, uh, having long been involved in a 12-step program, that there is positively absolutely no necessary religious aspect of spirituality. I can certainly see any, uh, any government entity uh, involved in security inquiring about a, a soldier's or a person's spiritual condition, because you're right, it, it, it does involve his, his or her attitudes in combat. But there's got to be this business with this religious coercion has got to stop. This is obviously unconstitutional and very unfair. But I don't think that has anything to do with the military program of spiritual fitness. I'm looking at an article right now, Brigadier General Rhonda's Cornum. This is from NPR, too, by the way. It says that um, it's, spiritual fitness has a positive impact on the quality of life, on coping with mental health, says Cornum. I mean, I don't have time to read the whole article right this second. I'm going to do that, but it looks to me like it has more to do with a generic idea of spirituality, not a particular denomination of faith, maybe not even necessarily a belief in God. Then why is it necessary, and I heard this suggestion a few minutes ago, why is it necessary to have uh, multi-denominational meetings or gatherings of, of any kind at all? Well, it's why not even... Religion why must any this doesn't even be deal with it doesn't even deal with any denomination it has more to well, do with the I fact that, that that there's you know there's evidence that people who believe in i suppose a higher power or whatever a very generic concept might be less um let's say you know susceptible to various impulses on the battlefield than Absolutely. someone who doesn't so Absolutely. That, but that's Chuck the did, issue. but Chuck did i not hit just hear you endorse having, like, for example, uh, uh, religious outreach to multiple denominations within the service? No, it's nothing to do with denominations. It has to do but, with someone's spiritual health, somebody I, I, in general. I, I agree. Whether, whether agree. they come, come to that like I do as a Jew or whether they come to it as a Christian or even for an atheist, for that matter. I mean, they believe something. They believe there is no God. It's a belief. Agree, but the... <laughs> But some, but some of the examples I've heard of some of the practices being done of the intimidation are done under the mask of spirituality, when in fact they're, they are the, the promotion of a particular Christian belief. I agree, but that has nothing to do with the military program of spiritual fitness. That's an entirely different matter. We're I, talking about some isolated examples which are unconstitutional. And I think that you have an, a, a kind of a conflation of that by people who just think there should be no legal expression of anyone uh, with regard to religion on a military base. That's what Mikey um, Weinstein's stand is, and that's he's threatening to sue anyone who speaks publicly on any religious opinion. Do you, do you uh, disagree Albert, that there... uh, our, our, um, our, our caller is talking about just spirituality, uh, and if, if these spiritual fitnesses programs are not used as a cover for proselytizing, there's no constitutional problem, is there? None. No, of course not. That's right, none at all. And, and it's so, when they're used as a cover, that's when you have a constitutional well, problem. Well, yeah, but that's not that's the claim, and I don't think there's I think that's unfounded. I mean, there has to be some evidence of that. This is one again that feeds into this whole conspiracy that there's this Weinstein's idea that there's a secret conspiracy to create a theocracy and and all this other nonsense. 
But do you, you know, honey? But Chuck, <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead, Albert. Uh, yeah, we talk a lot about the law, constitutional law and cases and all that, but it's not just about the law, it's about the facts. And as I said earlier, you need to know what the facts are. Now, wouldn't we all like to sort of buzz the Supreme Court right now and say, hey, would you like to chime in on this? What do you think, constitutional or not? They'd hang up the phone. And, and the reason is because they don't know what the facts are. There's no – in fact, this is a rule. It's called the case or controversy rule. The Supreme Court will render an opinion only when there's a case or controversy. And the reason is the Supreme Court wants the facts to be crystallized, right? They want to know exactly what happened uh, on a factual level before they render an opinion. And we don't really know exactly. We're talking about the spiritual survey. Who knows what's in that thing? I mean, what is it? Is it an email? Exactly. Is we it don't know. a document? We, so we, we, we don't know. We don't know, which is why we shouldn't be jumping to hysterical conclusions about it being a secret idea to force people to go to a faith. I doubt that. And we, but none of us know we should look into this. Maybe, Patrick, we should come back and do a show on it. Uh, we, we, good point. Um, uh, I noticed, though, I, I've got the same article, that as evidence, um, uh, Mikey cited a part of the spirituality training module that is being promoted by General Cornum, uh, which describes the meaning behind the flag-folding ceremony, and it says the 12th-fold represents an emblem of eternity of eternity, and glorifies in their eyes God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. So that's an example of the that's spiritual fitness being used as a cover for, obviously, Christian religion. That's what Mikey Weinstein says, Patrick. Uh, I don't believe about that. 20 seconds. Okay. Uh, Albert Navarro, Albert, thanks thank so you. much for joining us. As always, the elements of constitutional law. Uh, you always straighten stuff out pretty well. We'll talk soon. By the way, we have a federal judge coming on the program, Albert. Oh, federal, exciting. Federal Appeals Court Judge J. Harvey Wilkinson III, the author of Cosmic Constitutional Theory in the second hour. And yeah, I want to thank that, our that, caller. That, uh, All right. Yes, thank you, caller, for joining us. Please feel free to do it anytime. Appreciate it. Patrick, why don't we take a break, and we'll then go to hour number two. You're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. And uh, we'll be right back. Blog Talk listeners, we're taking a break so our stations can identify themselves. Of course, you know you're listening to Fairness Radio on uh, Blog Talk Radio and, uh, and also on Cyber Station USA. Uh, radio stations doing commercial now. When we come back, we're going to have a substitute to a commercial, but it's a good commercial. Uh, so stay tuned. And like today, coming up, we're going to have a state U.S. federal appellate court judge with us. This will be a first in radio, and it's just an exclusive interview. So we'll be back in about uh, 20 seconds. Thank you, Patrick. Uh, hour number two of Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. Uh, by the way, you're welcome to join us at 424-675-6806. Patrick is our guest on board. 
Um, no, our guest won't be here until um, uh, the 15, uh, 2 15 Eastern. Oh, okay. Um, great. And that being, of course, uh, J. Harvey Wilkinson, the third author of Cosmic Constitutional Theory. Um, boy, what a book. Huh, Patrick, you read it. Yes, I did. <laughs> My copy is full of little yellow stickies all the way through it. I've gotten just through. Yeah, I've gotten just through the first chapter about almost through it. That being the living constitutionalism is one of the theories. He seems to suggest that all of these, what he calls cosmic constitutional theories, have led to somewhat of a diminution of the court as a, as an independent body in this country. Well, I, do I have that right? Um, that he's that that's pretty much it. I'm sure when he first comes on, we'll we'll, we'll ask him to uh, give us a, a capsule argument. But you know what we have to do right now? We have to we have to uh, talk about our sponsor. Great, and, and our, uh, that being Barton Publishing, and we hope that uh, their 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 great uh, ad is nearing the top of our page. Uh, it's coming <laughs> up there, and, and of course Joe Barton, the president of Barton Publishing, is going to be with us tomorrow, and and we realize that he's a sponsor. Uh, but we want, we want to be fully transparent about that. However, Joe Barton has some very good things to say, and we like to have him on uh, once in a while uh, whenever they bring a new product on that can be useful for your health. That's bartonpublishing.com, which is the place to go for information on how to manage your health without resorting to expensive and possibly uh, dangerous drugs. And as Chuck pointed out yesterday, when you get something from Barton Publishing, it doesn't have two pages of fine print about all the bad things that will happen possibly to you. It doesn't have side effects. It's just good, solid information on how to use natural foods and natural products to uh, enhance your, your health. And if you go to www.bartonpublishing.com um, and you click on that, you'll see a whole list of, of uh, conditions that you can take a look at, acid reflux or diabetes or overweight or whatever it is. You click on that, and up will come a list of the information they'll give you. And I just want to stress, Barton Publishing only sells information. They don't sell drugs. They don't sell cures. They don't promise that, that your cancer is going to go away, and I, hope, and I hope that nobody out there has cancer. But what they do is they give you information that you can use that, uh, with natural products to uh, take care of your body the way you want to. And when you decide to buy something, a little box pops up that says coupon code, and you put in that fairness, and you get an immediate discount, and those discounts are big. There you go, Patrick, and uh, we urge people to go to the website, click on it, and just peruse it. Take a look at all of the different um, short uh, manuals that are offered by Barton Publishing. Um, you know, they have a lot of stuff there. I mean, they've got, you know, cessation for smoking, uh, Alzheimer's disease, um, just general health advice that deals with uh, things that you, pro you know, they're not, you don't have to get any exotic Chinese medicines or or health food, you know, the macrobiotics, nothing like that. It's the kind of thing you can buy in any, or, you know, regular supermarket. You know, in the case of uh, acid reflux, one of the main ingredients is an apple a day that helps reduce acid and that uh, improves your your situation. So, you know, these are a common sense pieces of advice. You know, they're, they're the, kind, it's the kind of information that the big drug companies may not want you to know because it's competition for them and it's stuff that doesn't cost much. You know, it's the kind of things you put into your grocery bag anyways, or it wouldn't cost much to add it. So check out Barton Publishing on our website, fairnessradio.com. And I would just want to say that I'm using it, and it really works. And, and of course, for acid reflux, there's a lot more to it than just uh, an apple a day. But, you know, 
there's nothing wrong with an apple a day. That's a pretty good thing to do. That's okay. right. It's not, there's no downside to it. No. You know, it's not going to make you fat either. <laughs> if anything, it's probably a good weight loss thing because it has natural sugars. That's a good point. Um, in fact, there was a, um, um, a a report that just came out uh, last week that linked um, excess sugar to cancer. And, right, I uh, saw that on 60 Minutes. Yep. Right, that's pretty scary. All yeah, well, sudden, we're all we're all hooked on sugar. Yeah. Well, as I Many was watching, it, I, I was I was eating a piece of pie and I slowly put the bite down on my plate and said, you know, I think I've had about enough of this. Uh, well, I think the premise there was is that sugar. It stimulates something uh, in your in your brain, or it makes you eventually. It's like it operates sort of like an addiction, in that you eventually need more or want more of it to have that same happy feeling that you had when you had a little of it. Yeah, that's exactly right. Which is, right. of course, what addic- that's what addiction is. Right, it releases dopamine, but in yeah. addition to that, they pointed out that cancer cells, some cancer cells, have receptors on them to to um, absorb glucose. And, of course, when sugar goes into your, your bloodstream, it turns into glucose. And when you eat sugar, if you already have a cancer, even a benign cancer, you are actually feeding it the glucose it wants to grow. Mm. And that's really scary. That's, yeah, but, I mean, I suppose it's – I guess the positive side of that is that if you do have cancer, you can maybe slow, slow it down or control it by eliminating sugar from your diet. I I don't know if that's the case or not, but it seems like it makes a lot of sense. In any in any way, in any case, Barton Publishing is the place to go for that kind of information. Patrick, what else is going on? Well, what else is going on is uh, we had um, uh, primaries last night, and uh, you know I wasn't a bit surprised that um, um, Romney rolled up three states. Were you? Well, no, I wasn't either. I was relieved, but I wasn't surprised. And um, I'm not so sure that Santorum is actually going to uh, to win his own state. But we have to take a quick break and uh, bring in our radio uh, listeners. So, uh, why okay. actually, why, without going to the music, uh, why don't you just do that? Sure. Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. Let's welcome aboard our radio affiliates, K, uh, uh, WWPRAM in Bradenton, Florida, KSKQFM in Ashland, Oregon, and, of course, Blog Talk Radio. You're listening to Cyber Station USA Radio Network. Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. You're welcome to join us, 424-675-6806, or you can email us at fairnessradio at gmail.com. We've got, uh, we've got Federal Appeals Court Judge J. Harvey Wilkinson coming up in about uh, five or ten minutes, uh, and we'll be discussing cosmic constitutional theory, why Americans are losing their inalienable rights to self-governance. Great it's, it's, stuff. Of great stuff, you, and for all of our. You know, listeners. I think that Patrick, if um, if Romney's elected, this guy could end up on the Supreme Court. Well, he's been on the short list, I think, twice already. Right. So, so. That's a, that that's assuming there's a vacancy on the Supreme Court. And sure, we, but I mean, this is that. this could be historic for us because we could then say a Supreme Court justice was on our show. That's that's true. A a a a. a, a well, yeah, all right. <laughs> Before he was Supreme Court justice, but yes, that's that's true. And he has been on the short list. And and this is a very thoughtful book, so I've, I'm looking forward to hearing from him. And for all of our listeners, if you've got constitutional questions, questions about particular cases, uh, you can email them in. He, however, he will not take questions on the uh, the current um, Supreme Court uh, hearings on the the health care. Uh, Reform law. That's that's not one he wants to deal with. He wants to to stay with other things. So, 
But, right. Uh, I mean, there's there's proprietary matters there. You can't really yeah. talk about a a, a a pending case. Right. You know, it, it's prejudicial. Yeah. So uh, anything, but however, if you want to talk about Roe v. Wade or gun control or you know any of those kinds of things, uh, email in your um, uh, your questions and. I know we're going to get more email questions than we probably have time for, so I am going to have to edit them a little bit, but um, there it is. In, in I'm curious case, about the congeniality between the judges of, of vastly different political philosophy. Ooh, that's a good you know, question. How do they get along, right? Ooh, uh, that, I'd like, yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I know uh, it's kind of a technical question. And, and another question I have for him is, is that the, since the Roberts Court has been sitting, there has been a substantial drop in the number of cases that the Supreme Court looks at. Um, and and why is that? You know, I mean, it's a, not necessarily a bad thing, but it, it, I suppose in an indirect sense it increases the um, the influence of the appellate courts and of the uh, federal, court, federal courts That's right. in the different districts. Uh, 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 Judge Wilkinson's influence. I wanted to see if he had any comments, and he may not, and I won't be surprised if he doesn't, uh, on um, the, the president's call for judicial restraint in um, looking at the health care reform act. But he probably won't. oh yes, yes, but he probably won't because that that uh, concerns the health care reform act. So <laughs> that's probably not a good question. But, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. But that is a good question. It's very interesting. Yeah, I don't get that. I mean, that's that's odd to me. But so be it. You know, yeah, it's well, a, it's something that's out there. That's that's one of the uh, the president's conservative positions. He calls for judicial restraint. No, um, he's not saying judicial restraint. He's saying that Congress should not be ruling on a on a something that uh, that the Congress has voted on. I mean, he said it flat out. That's that's not restraint. That's saying that uh, to tell the Supreme Court that they can't do something or shouldn't do something that they've been doing since uh, Marbury versus Madison. You know, the Supreme Court regularly rules both in. Affirmatively and negatively on congressional on congressional laws, whether they rule to either throw them out or whether they rule to confirm them. I mean, that's what they're supposed to do. That's what they've always done. I don't get that. Well, well, let let me read what the president said. Totally conservative. Quote: The point I was yep. making is that the Supreme Court is the final say on our Constitution and our laws, and all of us have to respect it. But it's precisely because of that extraordinary power that the court has traditionally exercised significant restraint and deference to our duly elected legislature, our Congress. Now, the argument that our upcoming guest makes is that judicial restraint is necessary, and and when the the courts do not exercise restraint, they're actually undermining democracy. They're they're undermining what he calls self-governance. So our our Republican conservative uh, guest, or if, if that's what he actually is, Calls for judicial restraint too, and he argues for it throughout the book. So I think the president and, and, and so we all pass on that one. No, I mean everyone argues for for judicial restraint, but that doesn't mean that they don't do anything. I mean they have to hear cases. Oh, course, sure, they I'm, should exercise judicial restraint, and hopefully they will in the in the course of examining a case. But that doesn't mean that they you know that they they can't either throw out something that they view as unconstitutional or confirm something that is. I mean that's. That's this is we're now talking about something that transcends just uh judicial restraint which conservatives do support. We're talking about the very function of the balance of powers. I mean that's what the Supreme Court's supposed to do. That, that's that's true, and the Supreme Court and the courts have always deferred to or, or feel that it's important for them to defer to the will of the people. It, it's the, true. And and he talks in this book about uh Madison's dilemma. 
Um, mm-hmm. Have you have you gotten to that part yet? No, I haven't. Uh, that, that's very interesting. Um, uh, Madison's dilemma. Uh, it, it it involves the uh, the tension between the will of the majority and the rights of the minority, and and where you draw those lines in different places. And that, of course, is what the Supreme Court often is called upon to do. Right, and I think that a more conservative uh, court defends the right of the minority over the mob. But, uh, you know, judicial restraint well, I is would call a the very... citizens the mob. Oh, please. No, no, no. I'm saying <laughs> the major... if the majority of people want something that affects the rights of, of the individual or minority or if the government does, then the court is supposed to step in because ultimately the individual, which is the most vulnerable minority of all, has natural rights. I mean, that's a conservative idea. But the issue of judicial restraint, yeah, I mean, I hope that they don't look at too many cases. I would hope that in, in most cases, you know, they should allow elected officials to make law. That's the way it's supposed to work. Yeah. But they do have to step in once in a while if elected officials make a law that is coercive to people or is uh, directly harming people according to what they claim is a harm. And uh, or in any way takes away very fundamental rights. I mean, this, this is it's restrained, but it's there as sort of a um, a check, as the as the uh, legal term is, and a balance to excesses by either the other two branches. You know that. But yeah, I mean, within the context, absolutely, judicial restraint. All right. Well, we, we we agree on that one. Although I'm sure that we we will draw the line of where restraint ends and legislation starts at different places with different cases, which is the way it always has been, you know. But right. And, and, go ahead. Well, I just want to say that I mean, judicial restraint is one thing, but to, for a president to say that they shouldn't in, even hear a case or should not overturn a case at all because it was elected by voted by Congress. Well, he that's, didn't say that's, that. that's that goes. No, I could give you the quote, Patrick. Okay, that goes like beyond. To... Okay, let me call it up. I didn't have it in front of me here, but okay. I, I read it over the air yesterday. It's exactly what he said in explicit terms. That's beyond restraint. That's saying the court has no right to overturn a law passed by the majority of Congress. You know, that's what he said you know, is, is that I believe the provision would be upheld. Is the quote I have? Okay, let me call it up. I mean, I read it over the air yesterday. All it right. is exactly what I said. It is. Well, we may have to uh, to wait because we have a break coming up, and we have a um, a guest on the line. So why don't we take a break, okay. and when we come back, we can uh, talk to our guest. Chuck Morse, so take it away, Chuck. 
Thank you, Patrick. Our guest this segment is Judge J. Harvey Wilkinson III, appointed to the United States Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit by Ronald Reagan. He has served on that court since 1984 and is its chief judge from 1996 to 2003. He has been frequently on the short list of prospects of the Supreme Court and is regarded as one of the nation's premier appellate jurists. Judge Wilkinson is the author of Cosmic Constitutional Theory, Why Americans Are Losing Their Inalienable Right to Self-Governance. Judge Wilkinson, thanks so much for joining us this afternoon. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Judge Wilkinson, I have a practical question to ask you for starters, and that is uh, that the Roberts Court has been hearing an average of, of considerably less cases, I think it's an average of 70 a year, than had previous courts, uh, even as recently as the Rehnquist Court, uh, which I believe there was an average of over 120, 150 around there. Is, there, is this something that, do you, do you have a, any idea why that is happening? Uh, is there a reason behind that? Well, I, I hope it's uh, because the lower federal courts are doing a good job and uh, that, that perhaps they have less to correct us on. Uh, I don't know. It's a trend that's been going um, for a, a number of years. And when um, I clerked for Justice Lewis Powell, uh, there were 100, about 130 cases a year that were heard, and now there are roughly uh, – 75 to 80. And I think uh, that's because the Supreme Court has become more selective and they really want to confine their review to a few uh, very important cases or to cases where there's a clear conflict among rulings in the uh, lower courts of, of appeal. So the Supreme Court regards itself not just as a court of error correction, but as a court um, which is going to resolve the really important cases um, affecting people all across the land. Uh, I wonder if this might not be a reflection of a more conservative court that does not want to be judicially active and that does not see itself as you know, past courts, the Warren Court, the Brennan Court, which were very proudly proactive. They believed that they had a, a responsibility, a cosmic constitutional theory, if, if you will, to uh, to change the law, to use, to change the nature of how we govern ourselves. That that because of that theory, they they're more reluctant to to bring cases into the um, into the judiciary, knowing that when they do so, it's going to one way or the other result in a changing of the law. Yeah, I I think it that might be the explanation, but I think more than the number of cases, it's what happens to the cases. Um mm -hmm. and that's the yardstick by which you uh, judge the uh, judge the court. Um I always thought it made a certain amount of sense for the Supreme Court to take a fewer number of cases because the cases they they resolve are so important. And taking a fewer number of cases really gives them time, more time, to um, reflect and think and discuss those cases that are um, before them. When, when the Supreme Court was taking 130 cases in the mid-1970s, I always felt as if they didn't really have enough time. And uh, so I think it's a very 
reasonable thing for the justices to say, hey, these are important, and we just need a little more time with them than we can devote if we have a hundred and uh, if we have 130 cases a year. So it's really what's done with the cases that would mark a court as activist or non-activist, but I think it's a product of just wanting a little more reflection time, and that, that's not a bad thing for the Supreme Court to have. Right, for sure. Uh, in your chapter, uh, Living Constitutionalism, and you describe several judicial philosophies that, along with originalism, pragmatism, um, the uh, you, you talk about uh, Judge Brennan, uh, Justice Brennan's uh, approach to the law, which I think would be described as classically activist. Um, how did that happen? I mean, you know, it really goes to, in a sense, the very issue you bring up in the cover of your book, the inalienable right to self-governance. You know, we, we have a republic here where we're supposed to elect people to represent us and then if we choose to unelect them or to throw them out of office, we elect someone else. They're, they're supposed to reflect our will within the constructs of the Constitution. And yet we have here a judge who decides that it's the court's responsibility to make law from the bench. And, you know, this was something that was done and glorified at the time as, as being progressive. Um, how did it happen that... that uh, Judge Brennan took this upon himself, and how is it that the American society has come to view the courts in such a way that we would look to them to make law rather than look to our elected officials uh, to make law? Well, this is a very good question and goes to the heart of, of what I was trying to convey with the, with the book, and maybe I can give you just a tiny bit of background I've always been fascinated by the the Constitution, and I've started reading these books on constitutional theory, um, and Justice Brennan's thoughts were among them, and they piled up on my reading table and to the point where my wife said, Jay, put those books down and pick up a novel. But I couldn't put them down. They were so interesting, and these theorists, uh, were so brilliant, Justice uh, Brennan, whom you mentioned, and Judge Bork, and Justice Scalia, and Professor Ely, and Judge Richard Posner. And I call them cosmic constitutional theories because theorists, because their ideas were so brilliant and luminous, they just lit up the legal sky. But then as I began to read them, I said, well, these these theories have a common failing, and these fancy theories are tempting judges to abandon restraint, and they are presenting an an intellectually respectable way to reach politically congenial results. And I thought, you know, that's not that's not right. And so I think these very brilliant theories have had a role in persuading judges that it's it's all right to enter this area and that area and the other area. And don't get me wrong, I feel like the federal judiciary is a marvelous institution. I've devoted my life to it. The men and women whom I've worked are some of the finest I've ever known. I think they have a role in maintaining, we have a role in maintaining order and protecting liberty. 
when I talk to judges around the world and and citizens around the world in Afghanistan and Iraq and Bangladesh and Sri Lanka, the federal judiciary and the rule of law are among those things they admire most. But I have to say, in part because of these very brilliant theorists, I think the courts have gone too far and that we now have competing schools of liberal and conservative judicial activism that began with what you were talking about, this uh, living constitutionalism. And I fear they are eroding self-governance for us and for our children. And so my book really is a is a creed de coeur. I'm I'm not a kind of a person who would ever storm the ramparts, but what I would try to say in a, in a soft voice of persuasion is please, let's return to our roots. Let's return to the traditions of restraint that have served us so well. You know, I, um, I, I'm speaking here as a conservative, and I've always run under the basic assumption that uh, judicial conservatism is not activist, that it basically looks to the language of the Constitution and of the founding documents to understand the original intent of the Constitution so we know exactly what these things mean. In the same way that we study language, we study Latin to find out the origins of the meaning of words, and that we look to make sure that our judiciary doesn't try to change the meaning of words in order to find new laws. We leave that to our legislators, people that we elect. Um, would you say that uh, judicial, uh, th that conservative uh, views are activist? Well, I, I think um, now, as I say, we, we have uh, two different schools of activism. I think liberals are engaging in activism, and I think conservatives are engaging um, in activism. And what what you end up with uh, are, are judges are involved um, in everything from abortion rights to firearms regulation to same-sex marriage to counterterrorism efforts to a millennial presidential elections and and who knows what else. And my views about this are that, you know, these are very difficult, hard issues, and they're the kinds of things that people can legitimately feel different ways about. And if you have these highly volatile issues and people have deep moral and religious and philosophical and political differences over them, one of the contributions the judiciary can make is uh, is drawing back a bit and leaving these issues to the political process mm -hmm. and not trying to impose one view, one constitutional view upon everybody else in the country. And we have such a great tradition of restraint within the Judiciary justices like Oliver Wendell Holmes and Louis Brandeis and and Felix Frankfurter and Lewis Powell, John Harlan, and I think they've recognized the real differences between the judicial process, which was supposed to, where life tenured judges were supposed to be impartial, restrained, 
um, above partisan discord. And those were were great judges, and I thought, you know, that the, they represented a great tradition of of restraint, and it was something that uh, it, it is something that I, I feel it would be a desirable thing to get back to. Yes, and, and I have trouble understanding, and I need to. I'll have to think about it. But how it is that uh, conservative judicial theory is activist? I, I think that it calls for a, a, a return to an understanding of the constitutional role of the Supreme Court. But I want to ask you one more question before we go to my co-host, and this deals with perhaps another cosmic constitutional theory that might be looked into at another time. Uh, That is uh, something, and this is making the rounds of conservative circles, uh, Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, while visiting Egypt and while commenting uh, with the uh, new leaders there and talking about their development of a constitution, said something to the effect, and I'm paraphrasing, that uh, they shouldn't look to the U.S. Constitution because the U.S. Constitution doesn't have enough rights and enough, you know, enough uh, human protections in it. Uh, doesn't that get into a, an issue of a whole different way of thinking, which is international law, which is perhaps a, a look out, outside of our constitutional system towards some sort of a foreign or extra-legal system? Well, I have a great deal of respect for the justice, and I I, I think what she, all she was trying to say was that um, you know we have uh, different countries, and that they perhaps can draw a lot from our judicial tradition, but in the end, they're going to have to decide what constitutional road is 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 uh, suitable for them. But Chuck, I wanted to come back to a. A, a really good point that you raised, which was how can uh, originalism be activist? Mm-hmm. And what I would say in, in in response to you on that is that um, there's a great deal of debate about what the original meaning of the Constitution actually is. And sometimes there's very little evidence as to what it is. Sometimes there's a great deal of evidence, almost too much, to what it is, and judges can get very selective about which strands of evidence they want to pull out. And so when you look into this original meaning, a lot of times it's really unclear what it is, and that gives judges, I think, an opening to providing... To, to reading their own views in, because the the original meaning is 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 just not an infallible map, mm-hmm. and judges have a lot of discretion when they look back as to what they want to do, and so what I'm trying one of the things I'm trying to suggest in the book is that originalism can be just as subjective as living constitutionalism, and that Judge Bork and Judge and Judge Justice Brennan both can lay the groundwork for an activist judicial philosophy. And I think liberals and conservatives um, both have um, demonstrated over the past decades activist tendencies that, that call for a greater degree of caution. Okay. Our guest is uh, Federal Appeals Court Judge J. Harvey Wilkinson III, 
And the book is Cosmic Constitutional Theory. Let me welcome aboard my co-host, Dr. Patrick O'Heffernan. Patrick? Uh, thank you, Chuck, and, and thank you, Judge, for being with us today. Uh, this is a small book about a very large topic, and I want to tell our listeners who are pouring email questions in, we have a lot of uh, questions from our listeners, I hope you have time to get to them, that this is a book that should be on their shelf if they're interested in the Constitution. Um, uh, Judge, I gather from your book that you feel that Roe versus Wade created a novel right not found in the Constitution, a right to privacy. And I agree that the Constitution does not enumerate that right. But if we don't have a right to privacy, that is a right to, to be free of the government telling us what we can and cannot do with our bodies or our minds or even our lives, doesn't that compromise all of the enumerated rights? Are there not some rights that are so fundamental to the very concept of a free people that the framers saw no need to enumerate them? Well, I I think it gets, um, uh, when you leave, when you leave the enumerated rights that are set forth in the uh, in the Bill of Rights and in the Fourteenth Amendment, and you get into unenumerated rights, um, as as Roe v. Wade did, you, you're on very tricky ground. And uh, this is one of the values of restraint: is I think we can recognize that in a in a question such as abortion, people have very deeply held views, and they're different. And it doesn't mean that one side's view is legitimate and another side's view is illegitimate. The way I look at it is this is an issue that deeply divides people on the most intimate moral, religious, and philosophical grounds, and so it's it's not it it didn't seem to me a proper subject for courts to impose detailed solutions to. It seems to me that the way you respect the fact that there are two legitimate sides to this very difficult and very volatile questions is to let the political process discussed the issue to admit the possibility that Texas may devise one solution and that Rhode Island may devise another. But I simply think it's it is a it it's it's a better course to have people respect one another's view and exchange views through politics than to have, let's say, a five to four or six to three decision come down from on high that says this is the way it shall be across the entire land. And I think respect, restraint on the part of the judiciary pays respect to the fact that Americans on even the most volatile questions may disagree. Okay, fair enough. Um, and as you can tell, I'm a progressive. But uh, then let me move on to another case and and yeah, I read your discussion of Citizens United very closely, and particularly of um, uh, in the context of uh, Ellie's process theory. And you note that some would see more speech the merrier, which is a position many conservatives have taken in this program. 
However, I wonder if there's not a deeper issue. In Roe versus Wade, uh, you disagreed with the creation of a novel right, and you feel that should be left to politics. But in Citizens United, uh, the court created a novel person, uh, a person with rights, and that person is not described in any sense uh, in the Constitution. It doesn't seem to be intended by the framers, and that person is a corporation or a union or a nonprofit. These are artificial entities created by the states. They're conjured up out of thin air by paperwork and filing fees. So how can artificial entities be granted the rights of real people and not trample the intent of the framers, whereby granting rights to real people does violate what you think may be the, the intent of the framers? How do you square that circle? Uh, well, I, I think one of the things you need to ask is, with every decision, um, does does this fall within an area that the public can uh, can recognize that the judiciary has, the judiciary has a right to be involved in? And I think the case that can be made for um, uh, Citizens United is that it addressed political speech, um, and that's at the very heart of our constitutional order, and if there's going to be anything where um, any any right that uh, the justices would guarantee, it would be the right to political speech under the under the first under the First Amendment. Uh, I I suspect I don't know, but I suspect that what was going through the minds of the prevailing side in Citizens United is that. There is a danger in having incumbents uh, regulate the speech of challengers, that given the Internet age, um, speech is much more of a free-for-all than it was um, in in decades uh, uh, past, um, and that we don't want um, the regulatory codes of political speech to become so complicated that, that they rival the Internal Revenue Code and that people have to hire dozens uh, of lawyers to figure them out in order to run for office. So I think what the the prevailing side was saying in that case is that political speech is a, is a free market of ideas and that's right at the core of what courts should, should guarantee. And um, that the corporate identity of the speaker uh, is going to be both left and right, but that the corporate identity of the speaker doesn't strip the speech of its character, which is political speech, and that that's the kind of thing that the courts exist to protect. So I think that's the rationale, and... uh, uh, I know it was a very controversial decision, but but uh, to me, um, it can be explained on on the basis that the court has a First Amendment obligation to protect that kind of speech, which is at the core of elections. All right. Um, um, you write later on in the book that originalism and living constitutionalism have turned democracy into a form of weaponry rather than the central organizing principle of our government, and I think Citizens United probably contributed to that. I agree with your your uh, position on that, but I'm, I'm confused about your solution. Um, 
your solution appears to be an end of theories, but isn't an end of theories just to return to sort of a combination of pragmatism and political process theory? No, I don't think so, because um, for years and years in the court, uh, our greatest justices, they didn't come with with some star-spangled theory. Uh, um, you, you, there's no way that the the difficult tensions in the Constitution and whatever are going to be captured uh, in, in these these theories. These theories are false gods. And in the past, our greatest justices, again, Holmes and Brandeis and Frankfurter and Powell, have done quite well without one of these magical theories. And and why have they done so well? And I think the reason is that they approach their job with a sense of respect to others. And who are those others? Those others are uh, the other branches of government, the executive branch, the legislative branch. Who else are those others? They're the states and the people within them. Uh, they're the private sector and the trades and professions and businesses that comprise it. And you don't need a theory uh, to, to tell you to respect the place of others in our constitutional order because that's what the document is all about. And to me, the theories are tantalizing, they're fascinating, they're put together by very brilliant people, but they're, you know, they're tempting us with the forbidden apple, which is that you can enter this area and you can enter that area, and here's an intellectually respectable way to do so. And... They were going down the wrong path with these theories, and and I thought, <laughs> I thought somebody ought to say so. Well, yeah. well, I, well, I hope you're successful in your in, endeavor to uh, make people listen to that, particularly on the court. Chuck, we have a lot of emails. Do we have time for a, a few Let, of them? Let's do it, Patrick, yes. Okay. Um, uh, Judge, we have... Um, uh, quite a few emails, and I've edited them. So, I'll, uh, and I also, I, I don't want to get into existing cases. But um, Buster Leone in Seattle writes: the Congress always ignores the second half of the Second Amendment, the part about a well-regulated militia. The so-called, but the so-called strict constructionist originalist on the court lets them get away with it. The Constitution does not say everyone can carry a gun anywhere they want. It requires they be in a militia. Ignoring this and siding with the NRA seems to be a blatantly political act. Is it? Well, um, my my view is that, that I've said this is that the Second Amendment it's a very difficult amendment to unravel, and they're they're two two diametrically opposed views of the Second Amendment that have have been at odds for a very long time. And, and one of the views is that that the framers of the Second Amendment only wanted to create a constitutional right to bear arms in connection with militia service. And then there's another, um, uh, and, and that was in the, the militia service was in the preamble to the Second Amendment. And then there's another view of the Second Amendment, which was that no, it creates an individual right to bear arms in certain circumstances, 
irrespective of malicious service. So we have these two views of the Second Amendment, which are just diametrically at odds. Uh, my thoughts were that the Second Amendment is so unclear, um, number one, and number two, even if you do write an, if you do have an individual right to bear arms, it's so uncertain where does the right apply and to which arms does it apply and all the rest, that we ought to leave this up to the people and to their representatives. It's it's a big part of what I what I what I mean and and respect is judicial restraint. And the folks in Montana may have one view of of firearms restrictions and the folks in in Massachusetts may have another and and that's fine. Um they're reflecting the different perspectives of the good people in those states. And so I I think once again that this is something that can uh, fruitfully be left to the political process and to the views of the people and the citizens who go to the polls and cast their conscientious ballots. And so I was very um, uh, nervous about courts getting into it, and they got into it under the, again under this fancy theory of originalism, which convinced them it was okay to do so. And um, it is just another the, the questioner. Uh, from Seattle has posed a good po- made a good point because this is another issue which is is political in nature, but I think to too great an extent the judges have taken it over. Okay, um, Dexter Mandal or Mandel in St. Paul has a very short pithy question: What the hell does the privileges and immunities clause mean? What does what mean? <laughs> the privileges and immunity clause. Well, that's a good question, too. And we have these things in our – we have these phrases in our Constitution, like there's the Ninth Amendment and the Tenth Amendment and the Privileges or – we have a Privileges or Immunities Clause, and we have a Privileges and Immunities Clause. And those clauses are are so vague, and the history behind them is so sparse, that I really don't know – I wish I could tell the questioner what they meant, but I don't really know what they meant. And frankly, a whole lot of other people don't know what they mean either. And this is the danger. when we, If we take these very vague phrases and try to read our own favorite lists of judicial, of, of our own favorite rights into them, then we get once again into... Uh, a judge is creating all sorts of rights under very with very vague foundations, and again, that seems to me to encroach to too large an extent upon the people's right to self-governance. So I think it's an excellent question because there are lots of phrases we don't really know what they mean, and we shouldn't try to push them too far. Okay, all right, and I just want to remind everybody you're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick on the Blog Talk Radio Network, Cyber Station USA, and our radio stations, and you can email us at fairnessradio at uh, gmail.com or call us, 424-675-6806. Sam Grant in Austin wants to know, where in the Constitution does the government get the right to regulate my personal property? Why can the EPA come onto my land and tell me I can't fill in a stinking marsh? 
this is what communist countries do, not America. Can you fix this? It sounds like he had a problem with the EPA. But it's a, it's a good question. Where does the Constitution say that the EPA can regulate private property? Uh, well, the, uh, there are limits, of course, to government's control over private property. Um, there are uh, the takings clause, for example, uh, poses a very strict limits um, on the private on on government's control over private property. You you can't exercise the power of eminent domain without um, just compensation. And the Supreme Court recently had uh, a, a very hard fought decision in Kelo, which said that the uh, you couldn't. Um, the, the question there was whether whether the government could condemn private property for the use of private develop, de developers. And that that decision um, split 5-4. Uh, so what we're talking here, I think, uh, about is something of a matter of degree. Um, everybody agrees that, that a federal agency such as the EPA or even local government, there's no way they can just... Um, walk into your property and take it. On the other hand, there are certain things, such as zoning regulations um, and, and others, which I think government has to be free to enact. Uh, and in some instances, they may, those, those zoning regulations or environmental regulations um, may interfere with someone's um, absolute freedoms to do what they what they what they want even on their own land you can't just do anything you want even if the, the property is yours so we live in this very complicated world where people do own property and they have all sorts of rights that attach to the ownership of property but on the other hand uh, the public makes certain demands um, for purposes of zoning and for purposes of in, environmental safety and for purposes of public health and for purposes of environmental um, uh, anti-pollution. And so we try to find a, a balance here. And um, I, don't think it's the, I don't think it's the kind of thing that can reach an all-or-nothing resolution. Uh, Chuck, shall, uh, or I should say, uh, Judge, uh, do you have time for uh, five or ten more minutes? Uh, I will be delighted to to do whatever suits you and, and your good listeners. Okay. Thank, right. thank you, Judge Wilkinson. I just want to mention a reflection I have from listening to this, is that you're describing the same arguments that were had between the anti-federalists and the federalists. And in a sense, your position leans toward the concerns that the anti-federalists had over the Bill of Rights, which they actually did not want to approve, not because they didn't believe that they were natural rights, but because they believe that by putting those things into language and by writing them down as a part of the law of the land, it would mean that the federal government and the judiciary and the other branches would be involved in regulating things that they took for granted as natural to the citizen. And I think that what you're describing really is something that is beyond the, what you describe accurately as cosmic constitutional theory, in that the courts shouldn't be involved in a lot of these issues that they've delved into. Uh, th these things should be up to elected officials um, and, uh, and regulated out of a basic understanding that America used to be based on, which is that we trust ourselves to govern ourselves. 
Yeah, and uh, you, you you put my thoughts in a very succinct way, and it's it's like someone crossing a brook. Um, with you can think of a judge crossing a, a brook or a stream, and you can you can think of the fact that in the middle of that brook or that stream are all sorts of rocks, and some of them are very sturdy, and you can put your foot down on them, and others are maybe smaller and have a lot of moss, and they're very slippery. And so you wouldn't want to put your foot down on them. And so what I'm saying is that when judges cross the brook and and ford that stream, that they should put their feet on the sturdy rocks and avoid the ones with the moss and the, and, and the slipperiness and the ones that are too small. But when judges move and they don't have a firm foundation in law and they're not acting on the basis of enumerated rights and they can't point to a tradition of judicial involvement that the public will respect and accept, then they're trying to cross that brook by stepping on moss and slippery rocks and they're going to fall. And if, on the other hand, judges move where the Constitution clearly allows them and guides them in doing so, such as in questions of political speech, or such as in questions of the right to counsel, or such as in question of not permitting unreasonable searches and seizures into, into into private homes, and such as in enforcing our our basic protections against uh, racial and religious and ethnic discrimination. When justices do those kinds of things, people will understand. But when you try to cross that, when you try to go uh, without that firm foundation in constitutional wording and text, then you're crossing the stream in a very hazardous way. And that, that I think, is where <laughs> we begin yep. to slip and fall <laughs> and get in a little bit of trouble. Judge Wilkinson, I want to ask you a question that is slightly veiled in terms of its politics of what's going on today. And that is, uh, and, and I think it's, it's a precedent set by Judge Justice Marshall, and that is, does the Supreme Court have the, have the uh, authority, as it were, to uh, either throw out laws passed by Congress or to affirm laws passed by Congress and or the president? And, and isn't this something that they do as a matter of routine? Well, I, I'm, you won't find a greater admirer of Chief Justice Marshall than, than me, yeah. and I, I, I believe in the power of judicial review. I, I think there's a big debate about whether um, – Marbury versus Madison or Brown versus Board of Education was the uh, greatest uh, greatest Supreme Court case ever handed down. I think they're the two greatest. And uh, uh, but Marbury versus Madison, I think, firmly uh, established the principle of judicial review, and uh, I think it's a, a first principle, a very important principle of our constitutional order. At the same time, it's a principle that should not be abused. And we've been given as federal judges life tenure. And with that life tenure, it seems to me the public has placed on us an obligation to accord their elected representatives um, abiding respect. 
And so, whereas, yes, we do have the authority to declare laws unconstitutional, um, it should be an authority that is very sparingly exercised. And I'll, I'll give you an example. All the time, we expect citizens to obey laws that they may not agree with. There are all kinds of things running from taxes to speed limits that you know good citizens may not agree with, but they obey those laws um, because it is the law and because they have respect for the institution of the law. Now, if we as judges ask citizens to do this, aren't citizens entitled in return to ask us to uphold laws with which we may not agree? And I think they are entitled to ask us that. And so the way I look at it is it's kind of a mutual pact between citizens and judges. We as judges expect citizens to abide by the law even when they disagree. And citizens can expect us to uphold the law even when we disagree. And that seems to me fundamental to what we're about. Mm -hmm. Chuck, can we squeeze in another question or two from sure. our listeners before we adjourn here? Uh, sure. uh, Lenore Fraser, 72 at AOL, uh, wants to know, and she's only one. We've got many, many questions here about uh, Gore v. Bush. But she wants to know um, if the, the court in uh, the, Gore, the Gore v. Bush decision, which appointed a president uh, who lost a popular vote, should the Supreme Court have gotten into that particular case, or should they have exercised restraint and stayed out of it and left it to the political process? And there's a lot of questions about uh, essentially the same question. Well, they, they, it's, a, it's a difficult thing. They, they didn't seek, the court didn't seek to get into it to begin with. It was a question that uh, pushed and virtually banged down the the door. Um, the uh, the Florida Supreme Court had 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 instructions um, uh, from the Supreme Court, and in 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 the course of as that case unfolded, um, the Supreme Court, when it first took the case. Um, asked the Florida court to do certain things, and then the Florida court, um, it seems to me, w was less than respectful of what the Supreme Court was expected of it. So things were in a very difficult spot, um, and the um, there was a lot of uh, the process had been going on a good a good a good bit of time since. We, the, we have about thirty seconds, Judge. I'm sorry. But I, I still think I wish it had gone longer. Um, I, 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 when you're talking about a presidential elections, uh, judges should make every effort not to involve themselves. Okay. With with that, uh, we are out of time. Thank you so much for being with us, Chuck. Thank you, Judge Wilkinson. I really appreciate it. Cosmic Constitutional Theory is the name of the book, available everywhere. Uh, it's been an honor and a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you, sir. Patrick, uh, talk to you tomorrow, Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. Check out our blog site, fairnessradio.com. Have a good evening, everybody. Good night, everybody.